Well, howdy, howdy, Redemption Church, everybody in line as well, and welcome to our mini-series in the book of Numbers, one of the most bewildering, perplexing, vexing works of the Bible, and yet we've been picking our way through it a little bit here, trying to understand the patterns and the principles that are revealed there within so that we can figure out some new perspectives for life and for the way that we sort of engage the world and how we seek God to do things, and so that's been the whole journey in this whole thing. It's just a five-week series. We're keeping it really small, and and today, my job is really that of a storyteller. So uh, we got a big chunk like we did last week, another big chunk today, and I'm trying to just kind of weave it all together and get the central core of some pretty unique, challenging, maybe even familiar uh, Sunday school stories are kind of in there uh, all as we roll through today. Now, as we get underway, I want to remind you we have an app. There's notes that you can follow along with. I, I know for some of us, you know, maybe we struggle to, to sit through kind of a lecture format thing. Those notes are a great way to kind of keep tracking as you go. You fill in the blanks as you roll through it and that kind of thing. So we have that, and that's great. But other than that, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us this morning, and then we're just we're off to the races, man. We're getting underway because we've got a lot of stuff to do. So let's go ahead and do it together. Jesus, I thank you so much for stories. There's something about stories that resonates with our soul, that grips us in a way that just, uh, you know, kind of information or facts don't always do the same thing. And I pray today that we will look at these stories in such a way that we see the strengths, the weaknesses, the sins, and the successes of people. And from that, we will learn from them, as Paul told us to do, so that we can be more committed to you. And so, Jesus, we look to you, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in your good and perfect name. Amen. Okay, so we have been in numbers for a little bit here. And in the first week, we saw that Israel was obeying God. They were nailing it. They were slaying it. They were just crushing it for all of like three weeks, right? That's a big stretch there. It's like the first three weeks of January, everybody can eat good and save their money, right? And then it falls apart after three weeks. And so what happens then is in about three days after that, they start testing God. They start pushing because they want things like comfort and control and certainty. And, and instead of learning their lessons, they double down in their folly. And from that, we see where they just go into full-on just disobeying God. The whole of the people, right, from the laity of the tribes to the Levites who were supposed to protect the camp, all the way to the leaders of Moses and Aaron, everybody goes off the rails, everybody disobeys God, and from that they are left with this 40-year wandering journey amidst kind of like cat claws and kitty litter, right? It's just going to be a drag of a trip. And the whole motivation is so that the first generation, they sort of die off, they end, and the next generation, they emerge, and God begins to do something with them. Not that God hates the first generation, not that God is completely done with the first generation, but God is a generational God, and he will build on the failures of the first to mobilize the second, and then there on it goes. And so with that, we're sort of in this in-between of the generations, and so today, week four is all about how they begin learning from God. It's the learning phase now. It's the, oh, maybe we should take some stuff in. Maybe we should rethink how we're doing things. Maybe we should act differently than we've been acting. Now, in the structure of numbers, we said there's really three parts and two road trips, right? So they start at Mount Sinai. We've gone through that. We've taken a road trip. We've ended up in Paran and then into the next road trip, which is all kinds of long, right? It's 40 years worth of stuff, or roughly about 38. But today now, we're ending that second road trip, and we're emerging into this region of Moab. 
Uh, and so things are beginning to, to really change here. And there's this overlapping effect that's happening. And so we're at the end of the 40 years. Generation one is in their twilight. Generation two is stepping into the scene to receive the promise that God made of, I'm taking you out of Egypt. I'm taking you to your ancestral home and you will receive blessing from me. That's the trajectory of the whole story. But to make this particular pivot, uh, there needs to be a shift all the way at the level of the leadership. So if you're following in our notes this morning, that's going to be the first principle in your notes. And it's this idea that learning sometimes requires new leadership. Right? You, you need a fresh perspective. You have a need for new eyes, right? And so last week we saw were basically Moses and Aaron as the chief leaders, they blow a gasket, Right? They're supposed to speak to the rock, and from that water is supposed to flow. Instead, they go out, they chew out the people of God, they bang on the rock of God, and from that they lose the blessing of God for their lives. God's like, Moses and Aaron, you will not lead the people into the promised land. Your leadership is going to come to a close. And so chapter 20, where we were at last week, closes with this. It says, The whole community of Israel left Kadesh and arrived at Mount Hor. And there the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, the time has come for Aaron to join his ancestors in death. Dum, 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 dum. He will not enter the land because, uh, that I'm giving the people because the two of you rebelled against my instructions concerning the water at Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eleazar up Mount Hor, and there you will remove Aaron's priestly garments and put them on Eleazar, and Aaron will die there and join his ancestors. And so Moses did as the Lord commanded. The three of them went up the mountain together, and the whole community watched. So this is a passing of the baton, right? And so they're up there at the summit, and Moses removed the priestly garments from Aaron and put them on Eleazar, and then Aaron died, and Moses and Eleazar went back down the mountain. So again, you get the idea that the high priest of the first generation, his tenure has come to a close. So Moses says, okay, I'm taking it off, and I'm putting it on your son. Now, I don't know if it was like, I don't know how that went, right? But you get the idea. The idea is that Aaron was the high priest. His job was to nourish and, and to instruct the people in the ways of God, and he had failed at that repeatedly, right? We go back just 40 years before, and there was a scene at Mount Sinai where he was supposed to instruct the people rightly. Instead, they worship a golden calf. He's a part of that. That's failure one. Then failure two was he tried to usurp the authority of Moses, and God had to get on for that. And now this third thing is he's supposed to say, Moses, don't get mad. Don't chew out the people. Don't hit the rock. But he doesn't do that. He's like, bro, chew out the people. Hit the rock, whatever it was. And from that, he is three strikes and out, right? That's what it is. It doesn't mean God hates Aaron, but it's like, Aaron, you no longer can be the spiritual leader of the nation. And so symbolically, it's placed on the next generation, his son, Pretty tough shoes to fill, right? No pressure there, being the offspring of your father in this way. But this is important. Because this is how the nation will relearn some things. They need to hear a new voice, and they need to disrupt the status quo. And I have found throughout the history even of Christianity, this is how God seems to work. A generation comes up, they have these new fresh ideas, and then over the course of time, they kind of become stagnant, stale, anchored in their ways, and it takes the next generation to challenge the previous, to rethink some things, to break up old hollowed ground. It's just the way God works, and that's the way he's working here. 
So there's this shift. The next generation is going to start to maybe learn from God differently, but here's what this oftentimes means. It means that learning is often three steps forward and one step back. I find that in my own life, right? I'll learn something, I'll learn another thing, I'll learn another thing, and I'll blow it. And that's kind of the course of things for this circumstance here in the section that we're looking at. And so what we have is, again, this blending of generations at this point. While one is going to die off and another is going to take over, it's not like one is just in charge and then they all die off and then suddenly the next day there's a new generation. No, they're overlapping. And because the overlap, you have good and bad. You have beauty and decay all mixed in the same thing. And so with the story that we begin to see emerge, you see that spirit. And so here's what we got. Back in week one, we learned that the reason for the book of Numbers was a census, and the census was to build an army, and yet the success of the army was predicated on the spiritual health of the people. So if they were focused on God, they were trusting God, they had faith in God, they would succeed. If they don't, they're going to fail. So what we know is if they're going to be an effective military, they have to be a focused people of God. But it seems this new high priest is already beginning to point them in the right direction, and so we see a series of events that begins to transpire, right? It has to do with military threat and what they do in light of the military threat. So starting in chapter 21, verse 1, it says, The Canaanite king heard that the Israelites were approaching, and so he attacked the Israelites and took some of them as prisoners. Then the people of Israel made this vow to the Lord, If you will hand these people over to us, we will completely destroy all of their towns. The Lord heard the Israelites' request, and he gave them victory over the Canaanites. Now, in our modern sensibilities, we're like, well, that seems really brutal and barbaric, and is that what God would do? Here's all we need to do for now. You have to understand that in their world, this is how they saw life. Everything was about combat, conquest, warfare, and your success in warfare was built on your God standing behind you to do this. So it's Clash of the Titans, Right? A bunch of human beings with the gods backing them and they go to war. This was all the outlying cultures in Israel saw this the same way, so they do the same thing. God, if you support us and you back us, we know we can win, and that's exactly what is going to happen here. They are going to win. Now, here's a fun fact, just because you showed up today. It's a freebie, all right? But back in chapter 13 and 14, the Israelites have run into these exact same Canaanites before. So back in that section, this is where the spies come back and the Israelites are like, there's giants there and we're afraid and we're like little grasshoppers that will get squished so we're not going to the promised land. And God's like, you're stupid. I'm with you, but you don't get it. So they all have to wander for 40 years. Well, immediately after that, you know what the Israelites do? Oh, uh, we changed our mind. We'll go get them, right? So they actually try to invade. They try to invade these dudes right here and they get their clock cleaned. They get wiped out because they decide, all right, now we're going to do it, but they do it without God, and they lose. So this is now kind of a reboot of the scene. But in this scene, what do they do? They go to God, they trust God, they look to God, and they have victory. So instead of doing things without God, now they're learning, and they're doing things with God. And in this chapter, we see that there are three different military engagements that Israel has. Three. So one with the Canaanites, and then two others with the Ammonites. And so three total, because again, Numbers loves the number three. You're going to see that a lot in this particular day. But all three engagements are predicated on a defensive posture. 
They're not attacking people. People are attacking them. But they're winning. And so while they had three tests of God and they had three disobedient actions of God, now they have three instances of seeking God and being empowered by God to have victory with God. And so we look at them and go, yay, they're learning, yay! But they're still kind of dumb, all right? So here's the deal. They have one big step backwards. So after the Canaanite victory, the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. I don't want to get too caught up in all of these details, but here's what this means. They've gone all the way up through the Red Sea, up and around 40 years, all the way up to Moab, or close to Moab, at Mount Hor, and then God's like, I'm going to take you all the way back down to the Red Sea. That's a massive detour. That's a drag. Like, I know this one. Here's what will happen sometimes. I love my wife. She is the coolest person on earth. But we'll leave the house. We'll get a mile down the road, and she'll be like, I forgot my phone at the house. We have to go back and get my phone. That one mile feels like 40 years for me. All right? I'm like, no, we're going this way. You want me to turn around and go back for that and then back? It's going to be forever. I don't want to do that. I don't want the detour. I hate detours. I hate them, right? Well, these people are in the same space. It says, but the people grew impatient with the long journey. And they began to speak against God and Moses. See, they haven't learned everything yet. So what do they say? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? We've heard this so many times. After a while, we're like, just stop talking. So on top of this, they say, there's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink here. And we hate this horrible manna. First off, there's nothing to eat except this horrible manna. Shut up, man. Right? But the other part of this, I understand now why the Bible calls the Israelites the children of God. Because they sound like children. Right? Have you had your kids be like, I'm starving to death! Like, shut up and eat your fruit roll up, man. Like, or I'm dying of thirst! No, you're not! It's just you don't like water and you want soda. All right? It's... That's all that's happening here. If they were dying, they'd be dead by now, right? That's not the problem. And I get them. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I love nachos, but I don't want to eat nachos for like 43,800 times, you know, in 40 years. Like, I get, man, it would get old. But it's keeping you alive, right? They're not dead. And so what we see here is they've had three steps forward in the chapter, but one big step back. And with that, God drops the hammer. It says in verse 6, The Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Now, it's interesting, actually. This is just another freebie here, but uh, in Hebrew, uh, this idea, these serpents are called seraphim serpents. Fiery, or even this angelic subgrouping, the seraphim. It's all the same word. So we kind of look at the story and we don't know what to do with it. Is it kind of like seraphimish serpents? Is it supernatural? Is it just poisonous snakes that are fiery? Like, we're not quite sure, right? But we're like, there's something going on and God is clearly doing it. But then the other thing we have to understand about the serpent in Israelite mythology and the surrounding culture is they didn't see them quite like we do when we read the Bible. Like we think serpent, we go, oh, the devil, Genesis 3, bad guy in the garden. That's all we see. But for them, symbolically, the serpent was a symbol of death and equally of life. 
It could go either way, depending. So death is obvious. They're poisonous. They were kind of seen as a symbol of chaos. But equally, they were seen as a sign of almost supernatural wisdom and of uh, new life because they shed their skin all the time and incredible survival in the desert where everything else dies, a serpent can live. And so life and death were captured in the image of the serpent, which is going to make sense for what happens next in an utterly weird story. But there's lessons to be learned. So snakes are coming, biting, people are dying. And then the people came to Moses and they cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. So pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. And so Moses prayed for the people. Now, this is the second time in the book of Numbers where the people have ever confessed their sin. The first time is after they miss out on, on the promised land and they have to wander for 40 years. After that happens, they're like, God, we see our sin. We're so sorry. Um, we're going to go attack without you backing us now. And that's when they get their butt kicked and everything else happens, which means they weren't that sorry the first time. But this time, there seems to be more substance here. Why? Because the first generation is starting to model some things, or the second generation is modeling some things that perhaps the first generation didn't exactly embody. But in this, there's something else I think is really interesting. Historically, uh, what happens when Israel complains is they don't have their stubborn spirit necessarily broken as much as Moses steps in and kind of protects the people. He appeals to God, God pulls back, and that's it. And while they certainly come to Moses and say, hey, pray that this will stop, God changes the conditions a little bit so that every single individual will have to do something this time, not just Moses will step in for them. No, it's going to be on every person to take an action. Verse 8, this is the weird part of the story. Then the Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole, and all who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a bronze snake, right, or a snake out of bronze, and attached it to a pole, and then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake, and instantly they would be healed. So notice this weird imagery again. These poisonous snakes are bringing death. But if you look at this bronze snake, you will have life and renewal and flourishing. Life and death are captured in the image of the serpents. But what's it require? It requires that every single individual look away from these serpents, look at that serpent, and in belief, believe that God will restore their life from the death of these serpents. So life and death are captured together. Look away from this, look toward that, and you will live. Now, here's why this story is interesting to me. Jesus commandeers it, right? Generations later, in John chapter 3, you know the section where it's like, hey, for God so loved the world, he gave. That thing we've all memorized in Sunday school and see at football games being held by a dude in a crazy wig. That passage in John chapter 3 starts off by saying this. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus uses this idea of the serpent in the wilderness who is defeating the serpents of the wilderness. And he says, I'm the same idea. I'm like the serpent lifted up to deal with the damage of the serpents that are down. 
Well, what's the key? You have to look. You have to believe. You have to turn your gaze from this and turn your gaze to that. That's the illustrative point that's being captured here. And so Jesus took the poison of death so he could give us abundant life, just as what we're seeing there in the wilderness. But again, you have to look, you have to believe. And so they looked to the healing serpent of God to deal with the poisonous serpents of judgment. But they look. I don't know if all of them look, but enough of them look that life is imparted, and from this we see mercy anew. In fact, I've said this throughout Numbers, that judgment always is designed to lead to mercy and to flourishing and to life. And so no sooner does that scene unfold that we see it says in verse 16, from there the Israelites traveled to get beer. Actually, it says to beer, but I think the other one is funnier. Um, which means well. And this is where the Lord said to Moses, assemble the people and give them water. And there the Israelites sang a song, spring up a well and make me whole. No, they didn't sing that one, but they sing. And this whole thing, is just like Lord of the Rings breaks out. You know, like if you've ever read Lord of the Rings, there's all these songs where there's these moments of either grief or celebration. That's Israel. They're celebrating. God's given us water. And so it's amazing. They complain, they get judgment, but judgment leads to mercy and God gives them water. They would have been so much better off to, from day one said, can you give us water? And God said, sure. Instead they complain, they suffer, and then finally get water. But that's the way the pattern seems to work for them. But now they're on the road again to the final stage of Numbers. Remember the three major waypoints? They start at Mount Sinai, they go to Paran, and then they eventually end up in Moab, right? Well, Moab is now where they're going to be at. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the people of Israel traveled to the plains of Moab and camped east of the Jordan River across from Jericho, right? So the walls came a-tumbling down. That's in a book and a half away, but that's where they're at now. They're right there, Right? And there, Balak, the Moabite king, had seen everything the Israelites did to the Amorites. And when the people of Moab saw the many Israelites and how many they were, and that they were all amassing there, they were terrified. And then the king of Moab said to the elders, this mob will devour everything in sight. So again, you get the idea. Just across the river, they're amassing as a giant army. They look like an invasion force for sure. And then the Moabite king's like, these dudes have punked three different kings. They're just terrorizing the landscape. And so Balak is nervous. This king of Moab, he's a little freaked out. So what do you do if you're nervous and you're freaked out by a potential invading army? You call John Wick is what you do. You get Liam Neeson. You find the Mandalorian. You don't care what you get, but you need a hitman to deal with your problem. And so in walks our hitman. It says, Balak sent messengers to call Balaam, son of Beor. And with that, we cue the legend of Balaam, the gun of the gods. He's a hired gun to do hired stuff. So what's Balak say to Balaam, this message that he sends? He says, look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and are threatening me. So far, they haven't done anything, but he's like, they're threatening me. Please come and, cure, and curse these people for me because they are too powerful for me. Then perhaps I'll be able to conquer them and drive them from the land. I know that blessings fall on any people that you bless and curses fall on people that you curse. So you want to know who Balaam is? He's a warlock, all right? He's like a witch doctor. 
He's a dude that has voodoo curses, and he can kind of chuck them at whomever he desires. He's also a legit historical dude. We have dug up inscriptions from other cultures that talk about this Balaam son of Beor, right? Like, he was a dangerous, deadly dude. And so in his day, he was like the goat of geopolitical bedlam, right? Greatest of all time. Like, he was an enforcer, and influencer in his day. And so Balak's messengers, uh, they were sent, right, as they were elders of Moab, and they were sent with money to pay Balaam to place a curse on Israel. Now, honestly, just as a sidebar, if I was that king, I would have been like, how about you come and bless us for money? Like, that would have been more the thing I think he should have done, but he doesn't. He's like, I need you to curse people. But God told Balaam, do not go with them. You are not to curse these people, for they have been blessed. Right, so no matter what Israel's done, all their dumbness, God's like, no, I'm with them. In fact, in Deuteronomy 25, there's this cool little thing where God's like, man, I didn't listen to Balaam back then because I love you and blessed you, Israel. They want to always remember that. So God's making the point, right? But in this too, because God says this to Balaam, it seems that he does have some kind of supernatural capability or power. Like it's not just hype. God's like, I don't want you to go and lay down a curse because that will be problematic. So this is why this guy kind of has the reputation that he does. But the point is simple. God's with Israel. God is uh, really setting up his people for something pretty profound. And so he's saying to Balaam, don't you go against them or I'm gonna come against you. That's what he warns this pagan warlock prophet uh, to, to steer clear of, right? Just don't get involved, right? But kind of Balak and company, the Moabites, they're, they're pretty desperate. And so they keep pushing, right? They're like, Balaam, just take our money. We want to deal with these Jewish people. We're just going to die to this. You've got to bring the smack down. Come, help us do this. So because they're pushing, it says that night God came to Balaam and he told him, since these men have come for you, get up and go with them, but do only what I tell you to do, right? So he's really clear about this. He's like, Balaam, don't do any improv. Don't go off script. Don't pull an Italian job and double cross me. Do what I tell you to do. That's what I'm expecting of you. And that leads to what I'm going to call a fable-esque story. I'm not saying it's a total fable, but we should read it in a fable-esque sort of way, with fable-esque sort of eyes, and it's all about a dude, his donkey, and the three interventions of a divine being. We all know the story of Balaam and his donkey. That's what now happens next. It's like a sidebar to the story. So, verse 21, the next morning, Balaam got up, saddled his donkey, and started off with the Moabite officials. But God was angry that Balaam was going, and so he sent an angel of the Lord to stand in the road to block his way. Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey bolted off the road into a field, but Balaam beat it and turned it back onto the road. Now, if you're paying attention to the story here, you should be a little scratch in your head. Because at this point, you're like, okay, so first says, God says, don't go. And then God says, do go. And so he does go, and God's like, why are you going? Right? And you're like, that's really weird. Like, why would God do that? I'll tell you what. I have no idea, right? Like, honestly, there are times that God does this. He does it to Abraham. He does it to Moses. Now he does it to Balaam. Like, there's times where God's like, do this. And they're like, okay. And he's like, why are you doing this? They're like, you told me to, right? Like, we don't know the whole kind of why God has the motives that he does. But if I took a little bit of a stab at this one, my sense is that 
Balaam is saying, all right, God, I won't curse anybody. But in his heart, he's like, oh, but when I get there, boom, land on a curse. Like, I'm still going to go against him. So I think there's a little bit of a, a stubbornness in here, right? So that's the first thing we just want to know. The second thing is I just look at the story and I go, what a sad little donkey, right? Like, here's this donkey. He's stuck between the stick of the will of a man and the sword of the will of God. That's a tough place to be between stick and sword, right? But in the story where this is kind of like rock, paper, scissors, uh, stick can't beat sword, so with that, the donkey's like, I'm going this way. I'm not going to face the sword. I'll take the stick, but the stick is beaten away at him, right? Well, then they continue back on the path, and the angel of the Lord stood at a place where the road narrowed between the vineyard walls. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it tried to squeeze by and crush Balaam's foot against the wall, so Balaam beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved further down the road and stood in a place too narrow for the donkey to get by at all. Notice the three phases here. Three is a big number again, right? But this time, the donkey saw the angel and just laid down under Balaam. In a fit of rage, Balaam beat the animal again with his staff. So the donkey's like, you know what? Forget it, bro. I'm just sitting down. And then here's Balaam just bam, 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 bam. And then Peter shows up. And, you know, you got like Sarah McLaughlin's song in the background. In the arms of an angel. Like all of that's happening, right? Like this is animal cruelty 101 in the worst way possible, right? So crazy. But then the story gets crazier. And it goes Dr. Doodle-little on us. Here you go. Then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. What have I done to deserve your beating me three times? And I don't know how your brain works. This is just me, an insight into me. Every time I see something like this, I'm like, what did the donkey sound like? I'm landing on Eddie Murphy and Shrek. Come on, Shrek! What are you hitting me for? Right? So that's what I'm going with. You pick your donkey sound. That's my donkey sound, all right? I think it's Eddie Murphy from Shrek. So, Balaam says this to the donkey. You've made me look like a fool. If I had a sword with me, I would kill you. All right, pause. This is why I say fable-esque, right? Because let's say I'm riding on a donkey. My donkey makes me mad. I'm beating him with the stick. And then finally he says, you know what? Stop hitting me with your stick, right? Here's what I'm not going to do. I wish I had a sword to kill you, donkey. I'm going to back off and be like, I've got a talking donkey. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to figure out how to make money off of you. We're going touring, man. Mr. Ed is my pet. That's what I'm thinking. And like the young people are like, Mr. Who? Go look it up on YouTube. All right, so I, that's where I, I, I think it's kind of like, oh, what's the story under the story? If we're so fixated on there's a talking donkey, we miss that. Well, why is he in the story? Right? Because again, this isn't a normal response to just blow off. Like, oh, I have a talking animal with me, right? Not common at all in any way. But this kind of tips us off to the idea that there's a truth underneath the truth, right? And, and, and here's what it is. Um, fundamentally by trade, uh, Balaam is a seer. That's really what we would classify him as. And here, the seer doesn't see. The donkey, who's a dumb donkey, can see where the seer can't see. So this is where, again, God's trying to wake up the character of the story, that you don't get it. You don't have vision here. You don't have proper perspective in this whole thing. That's the first part. The second part of this is real simple. Um, there's one stubborn ass in the story, and it's not the donkey, right? 
It's not. Right? You think about it, like, in the King James Version, it says, this is Balaam's ass. No, it's Balaam is the ass of the story, and he's acting like it, and he's stubborn, and he doesn't see, and he doesn't get it, and he kind of doesn't want to get it at first. And so God uses this illustrative, or illustratively, to get kind of the point of the seer. So the donkey continues. He says, I'm the same donkey that you've ridden your whole life. Have I ever done anything like this before? Have I ever been disobedient? Have I ever wandered off? Have I ever done things to harm you? And Balaam's like, no. And so the donkey's like, okay, Balaam, why don't you figure it out? You're going down the wrong path, man. You got to see things differently. Maybe it's you and it's not me. It says, then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the roadway with a sword drawn in his hand and Balaam bowed and he fell down on the ground before him. And he says, why did you beat your donkey? This is what the angel says. Why did you beat your donkey these three times? I have come to block your way because you are stubbornly resisting me. Again, on the outside he's complying, but it seems on the inside he's resisting until now. And so Balaam confesses. He says to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were the one standing in the road to block my way. I will return home if you are against me going. But the angel of the Lord told Balaam, go with these men, but say only what I tell you to say. So again, this is where I think he was probably going to go and pull a fast one, and now he's like, no, I'm just going to stick with the plan. I'm going to do what you want me to do. And so Balaam, he continues in the journey with his very sore, slightly angry, though very vindicated donkey, right? They continue to a very impatient King Balak of Moab. And Balak says this, didn't I send you an urgent invitation? Why didn't you come right away? Didn't you believe me when I said that I would reward you richly? But Balaam replied, he's like, look, which I got to imagine, he's like, look, man, give me a break. I've been talking with an angry angel. I've been beating on my donkey. My foot's been crushed. I talked to my donkey. You're lucky I'm here, right? Like all of that would probably be in the mix, but I've made it, I've come. And yet you got to understand, I have no power to say whatever I want. I will speak only the message that God puts in my mouth. And so he's trying to warn the king. You've hired me to do a job, but just so you know, what I'm going to do is not necessarily the job you want. I'm going to do whatever God tells me to do. Now, at this point, this is where, again, you know, I think King Balak should pivot to, okay, let's skip the cursing. How about you just bless me? Maybe that'll be enough, but, but he's not in that space. So Balaam's telling him, and all Balak is hearing is yada, 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 whatever. I don't care. Here's the money. Let's go anti-Semitic. Let's deal with these Jews. That's all I want to do, right? And so they go. And they go up to this first mountain, Bamoth Baal, and they build seven altars so they can kill different animals and take the entrails so there can be divination. Like this whole prop thing occurs. And in this, why they're going to these high places, these different mountains, is because supposedly different gods dwell in the high places, which is why later you see the Israelites building altars in high places for the different gods. Same problem. But here the king thinks, oh, we can get a god on this mountain to do what we want him to do. And with Balaam's help, we're going to go ahead and wipe out the Israelites. This then begins the three cursed blessings of Balaam. And what I mean by this is, cursed your blessings. That's what it is. So, there is the first cursed blessing. 
King builds some stuff, kills some stuff, eagerly waits for Balaam to return with a good word, right? So Balaam goes off and does whatever, I don't know, pre-Iron Age warlocks do. And then he comes back, and he found the king standing beside his burnt offerings with all the officials of Moab, and this was the message that Balaam delivered. Balak summoned me to come from Aram. The king of Moab brought me to these eastern hills. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come and announce Israel's doom. This is what you wanted me to do, king. And I'm sure the king's there is like a total Bond villain, like, yes, yes, kill them, petting his cat, whatever else, right? Let's wipe them out. But then Balaam says, how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I condemn those whom the Lord has not condemned? Then King Balak demanded, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies. Instead, you have blessed them? But Balaam replied, I speak only the message that the Lord has put in my mouth. This should be a sign of like, hey, just stop now, cut your losses, be finished, move on. But that's not Balak, right? He's not finished. So we see the second cursed blessing. The king told Balak, or King Balak rather told Balaam, come with me to another place, because it's all about location, location, location. Come to another place, and there you will see another part of the nation of Israel, but not all of them, Curse at least that many, right? What do you think is hilarious? It's like, okay, you can see like a third. Is that enough? Can you do a third for the same price? That's what he's shooting for. We've gone to a different mountain peak, looking for a different God to intervene, right? This is Mount Pisgah. And so he's like, kill that many. Deal with that many. Curse that many, right? Maybe it can happen. And so Balaam left, came back, found the king standing beside his burnt offerings with all the officials of Moab. And he's like, what did the Lord say, right? And he's eager for this. And so again, here's the message. He says, rise up, Balak, and listen. God is not a man, and he doesn't lie. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? I received a command to bless these people as God has blessed them, and I can't reverse it. Here's the poor king. Here's this thing. He's like, con! Right? He's like that. Or Newman. He feels angry. So Balak said, fine. If you won't curse them, Just stop blessing them for crying out loud. Hook me up with that, right? But Balaam replied, didn't I tell you that I can only do what the Lord has commanded me to do? Man, I told you from day one, there's no fine print. I tried to tell you. Then the king said to Balaam, come, I will take you to one more place. Perhaps you can then please God or will please God to let you curse them from there. So we're going to try one more location, one more mountain, see if it can happen. So they go to Mount Pure, right? But here something really cool happens. Something shifts in Balaam. It's not that he just makes a shift. Something moves him. It says in chapter 24, verse 1, By now Balaam realized that the Lord was determined to bless Israel, so he did not resort to divination as before. Instead, he turned and looked toward the wilderness where he saw the people of Israel camped tribe by tribe. Remember that big cross in the desert. He's looking at this giant cross in the desert, all the tribes kind of going in all the directions. Then the Spirit of God came upon him. And this is the message he delivered. He said, this is the message of Balaam, the man whose eyes see clearly where he didn't see on the road, right? Who hears the word of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who bows down with eyes wide open. He says, how beautiful are your tents, O Jacob. How lovely are your homes, O Israel. Their king will be greater than Agag. Their kingdom will be exalted because God brought them out of Egypt. For them, he is as strong as a wild ox. Blessed is everyone who blesses you, O Israel, and cursed is everyone who curses 
you. What he's saying to the king of Moab is, dude, don't resist these people. Get on board with these people. That will be your flourishing. That will be your blessing. Don't fight them. Bless them, and God will bless you. This was a promise 670 years ago previous, where God told Abraham, I'm going to change the world through you. And all who bless you, I will bless. All who curse you, I will curse. Because my ultimate goal is to change everything and everyone so that everyone is blessed. So this is just kind of going back to the whole scene. And it's reminding that God is faithful. Even when we're faithless, even when Israel's faithless, God is faithful. So what did King Balak do? Did he say, yeah, I should get on board with this. No, he flew into a rage against Balaam. He angrily clapped his hands and shouted. What didn't he think it's just funny? You are the problem, right? Like he was just mad. It's like, you blew it. You haven't done what I wanted you to do, right? I called you to curse my enemies and said you blessed my enemies. And so all I know is on Amazon, one star does not curse, only blesses junk. Don't buy it, right? That's where he's at. But before Balaam rolls, he has one last bonus blessing to give for the future and for the world. He says, now I'm returning to my own people. But first, let me tell you what the Israelites will do to your people in the future. He says, this is the message of Balaam, who sees, who hears, who has knowledge, who has vision of the Almighty, who bows down with eyes wide open. He says, I see him. I see a future leader, but not now, not here. I perceive him, but in the distant future, a star will rise from Jacob, a scepter will emerge from Israel, a ruler will rise in Jacob, and he will defeat the enemies of Israel, and more importantly, the enemies of God. He will defeat all that curses, and he will bring forth all that blesses. And after this big, long discussion, Balaam left and returned home, and Balak went on his way. But you can't help but look at that and go, ooh, a ruler, a star, a scepter, an extra special leader that will one day come. See, this leader was promised 380 years before at the end of the book of Genesis. It says there a scepter will not depart from Judah nor a ruler's staff from the descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all the nations will honor. And then you jump back about another 286 years and there was that first promise to Abraham about the one who would bless all the nations. The one who will be lifted up to undo a curse. The one who will be lifted up to bring forth and unleash a blessing for the world. Numbers 24 is just embedding into it a simple, solitary idea that there is one yet to come who will change the fortunes of humanity. Then we fast forward to the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3. Paul writes, what's more, the scriptures look forward to a time when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight by their faith. God proclaimed the good news, the gospel, all the way at the beginning, right? To Abraham long ago when he said, all the nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ, who look at the saving serpent of bronze or the suffering sacrifice of God who is Christ, whoever looks will be rescued. This is the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. See, this same figure in person is illustrated symbolically both in Hebrews 1 and Revelation 22. He is the one who has the scepter of justice. And he is the one who at the very end of the Bible, the last chapter, is called the bright morning star. 
What did Balaam say? A ruler with a scepter who is a star who will change everything. What you see in Numbers is that Jesus is the traveling rock. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the manna who brings bread for life. He is the serpent lifted up. He is the foreseen ruler. He's the scepter. He's the star. He's all of these things. The story has always been the story. He's come to undo our curse and with that unleash our blessing. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you are the God who saves. I thank you that you are the God who wants to bless the world, not just me today, my life, my little Christian nook. You want to bless the world and you want to use us to bless the world. I just want to give a challenge for anybody that's with us today, watching online or in the room. If you're like, man, I'm not a Christian, I don't follow Jesus. Uh, but I want to be unleashed from a curse and unleashed to a blessing. Y'all, I want to have life with Jesus anew. For you, it's a prayer where you just say, Jesus, I've gone my own way. I've sinned against you. I know that my life is, is not what you want it to be, and I want to follow you so that your life would be unleashed in me. I'm looking away from the things that sting and bite and poison. I'm looking to the one that rescues and brings flourishing and saving. Jesus, you're the one. You make that your prayer and your words. He hears you, brings you in. And I would love to know you did that. On our app, there's a tile you can click and let us know that you made that decision. For the rest of us, Jesus, I pray that we are faithful to blessing the nations. We're faithful to the Sermon on the Mountain, the Sermon on the Plain, and the Spirit of Love, and the Fruit of the Spirit, and everything else, that we would live these things so that we might bless in your name. We thank you and praise you, Jesus, in your good name. Amen.